Welcome to Storytime with Paul Doerr. This season of the podcast includes excerpts via live shows and in-studio recordings from my new book, I'm Leaving It, and other stories. Some of the stories are true and some are not. I'll let you figure it out. But they all hopefully have my trademark charm, wit, and profound wisdom. Purchase your copy of the entire book in paperback, ebook, or audiobook form at all major online booksellers. I also write a monthly newsletter that is both fun and insightful. To subscribe to the newsletter or for further information about the book, please visit pauldor.com. Today's story, Hearing Voices. You dumbass, stupid, idiot. Who in the hell do you think you are? How many times do I have to call you an idiot until you finally see that you are worthless and full of shit? What's funny is that everyone around you can see it. But you, you seem to have blinders on to the level that others put up with you. Stupid dumb asshole. We've gone over just how ridiculous all this is. That client, they are going to fire you. In fact, they are going to ask for all the money that they've already paid you. You're going to go bankrupt. Remember that homeless guy sitting on the street who asked you for change on your way home? Yeah, that's going to be you. First, you'll get fired. Then you'll have to return all the money anyone has ever given you. Then you'll lose your house and all this crap you call your belongings? How do people become homeless? Not all of them are as big a mess as you are. But you'll be joining them soon. Pick the one stupid outfit you have, pack a goddamn bag, and say goodbye to all the people in your life. Dumbass. That's me talking to myself. Everyone has an internal voice. This is how mine talks to me. It likes to provide daily updates on how I'm screwing up. This is not an outside person that I am speaking to. It's a style of dialogue that I've cultivated over many years since I was young. For about as long as I could remember, the voice gets right to the point. Sure, there are new age, self-helpy terms like negative self-talk and stuff like that. I get it, but what doesn't help is identifying it in such a way that makes it angry and uncontrollable and refers to me as gullible, ridiculous, and forever a prisoner. The voice didn't just come into being, it was created over time, and over time, it turned on me. The voice definitely existed when I came into existence. It lay dormant inside my own mind. If I was to think very hard, I'd say the first time I came across it occurred during my figure skating days. As previously mentioned, I was a competitive figure skater, an athlete who trained every day. Analyzing this nowadays, I believe the voice wanted to keep me in a box. 
It really came on strong when I attempted to step out of my comfort zone. It would be right there to slam me back down. You're going to come last in that competition next week. You suck. Look at who you're competing against. You are by far the worst skater. You should give up now and save you and everyone around you the trouble of having to be kind and say things like, Well, you gave it your best shot. Sure, it might be your best shot, but your best shot still sucks. Stuff like that. I believed this voice in my head because deep down I knew that it was me talking. I believed these things about myself. I had no choice, really. If you encounter a bully who, every time he sees you, tells you that you suck, you can just try to avoid this person. The voice is carried around with you, around every corner, no matter how deeply you attempt to silence it. It only comes back stronger and with resolve. When I would be all dressed up in my nice figure skating costumes and step on the ice to my starting position, my brain would be firing on all cylinders. An argument raging inside my head, the voice screaming at me to just give up while I tried pushing myself through all the motions. But usually the voice won out. It became an ongoing feedback loop. The voice convinced me I'd do bad, so I'd do bad, reaffirming that the voice told the truth. In a way, I started to believe that the voice was trying to protect me from myself. Instead of living the kind of life that I could be, the voice was showing me the reality of what my life is and will continue to be. When I got into university and started exploring different avenues outside of being a competitive athlete, the voice was there to tell me I was full of crap. I took writing classes. Don't even think of reading this drivel out loud to the rest of these people. You're wasting everyone's time. I started making my own films. You need to burn the film that was used to make this. Most importantly, I started making new friends. The voice was quick to point out that these friendships were based on proximity. The only reason most of these people talked to me was that they wanted something from me. And that thing wasn't friendship. It was a recognition that I knew how to work and make things. Other people could participate and then take credit, using them to further their own lives, agendas, and careers. Cynical? Maybe. Bitter? Not yet. The films and the writing did suck. I won't deny that. Isn't that what everyone thinks of their work from years ago? Or is it the voice still lurking in the dark recesses of my mind, that the perspective of my personal history is so tainted and fixed by the voice that I will never be able to see things simply as they are? Maybe, maybe not. After university, I started working at a small production company where I learned almost everything I know about storytelling through visual mediums. Still, if anything went wrong on a project, the voice was there to lay blame at my doorstep. Film and television are collaborative arts that involve many different people through many stages of production. Didn't matter, even though I usually performed my duties at the highest level, working through nights, pushing myself, I believed that it was never enough. Years went by, and the voice realized its true strength. At points of physical and mental exhaustion, the voice could stroll into a situation and completely take control over my mind. I was still me. I still functioned, interacted with people, worked. It was like going into a fog where the real me seemed very far away, 
so far that I watched myself from outside of myself. No one noticed. No one could tell. I remember very clearly a moment during a relationship I was in at the time. We often worked side by side at my apartment. This was the first time someone recognized that I was not myself, that the voice had taken over. I was working very hard on my own personal creative projects, and something did not come through that I had focused on for a long time. I lay on my bed, staring blank-eyed at the wall. She was reading at my desk, looked over, and was shocked by what she saw. What she saw was not me. She crawled into bed with me and just held me. That was exactly what I needed, for someone to just know that the voice had taken over, just to touch me, bring me back. A project I was working on at the office beat me. After months of working around the clock, the project was finished. At that moment of release, of physical and mental exhaustion, the voice meandered in and took over. Took over for years, really. Burnt out, I left that job that had been a big part of my life for years. After working for so long, I wanted to do something that held very little responsibility and had a small time commitment. I went back to my athletic roots and started teaching little kids how to skate. The voice was a constant presence at the time. Moving into my 30s, most people around me were doing adult things like getting married and having children. This was not on my radar as the voice continually let me know I was a worthless person who no one considered lovable. If I did manage to go out on a date, the internal dialogue was laser sharp, pointing out every single detail that I was getting wrong. Example, we would be at a coffee shop, something simple and with zero pressure. Didn't matter. Inside, my brain would be on fire. Why did you say that? If she could, she'd walk out immediately. She hates you. She can't wait to get out of here. You are an idiot who will always be alone. And so on. Basically, in most interactions, two narratives were going on. The one that the world saw, a somewhat seemingly well-adjusted individual who, although might be living a lonely kind of life, was sort of endearing with a self-deprecating sense of humor. The second, deeper one, was hyper-aware of every word, motion, and action happening around him. It was like when they started releasing DVDs with audio commentary by the filmmakers, except the person doing my audio commentary was the voice, who essentially was my shadow side. Try it sometime. With everything that happens to you, automatically bring it to the most negative result possible. It's neither pleasant nor helpful. During this time, I moved a bit out of the city. What I didn't realize was happening was that I had given myself over to the voice. Not entirely, not yet, but a piece of me. By moving out of the city, I isolated myself from friends and others. I lived a quiet life, one where I didn't do much. The less I did, the less things the voice had to comment on. By not doing things or talking to people, the voice was a little quieter. This was no way to live. After years like this, I rarely heard the voice because I rarely did anything. After a certain amount of internal silence, some opportunities presented themselves to me. A gnawing feeling started poking me, this feeling like I had been a failure. No, this wasn't the voice talking. This was me. Me, coming up for air, looking around and thinking, what the hell are you doing with your life? Out of the blue, I got a job offer to work at the Olympics in Russia. Two things happened in Russia. I learned to control things with my mind, 
and I killed and buried the voice beside the Black Sea. During the entire process of getting a Russian visa and preparing for this trip, even though I felt I was not qualified for this job, the voice was relatively silent. Still, a bit shook from years of having given over to this voice, I was once again stepping out of my comfort zone. With each day of silence, I gained more and more confidence. The plane ride was long. We landed in Moscow and were led through the airport to another waiting area for the next 10 hours. I didn't know anyone on the production team. Most of them had worked together for years. I was the new person, and they were understandably wary of me. I was unproven. It was unsure if I was up for the job. What they didn't know was that I had covered most of this ground myself. At least we were on the same page. In Sochi, the palm trees were a strange backdrop for a Winter Olympics. I learned later that some of those palm trees weren't real and had people in them spying on us. Take that as a truth if you'd like. The compound we were staying in was literally that, a compound complete with barbed wire. The reason this was in Sochi was that we were trapped. The Black Sea on one side, mountains on the other. There really was nowhere to go. Our visas were our accreditation, and our accreditation only got us specifically into two places, where we slept and where we worked. We arrived by the busload and checked in at the same time. When it came to my turn, I had to sign some papers, but they were all out of forms. The hotel manager said, We have someone running through the night with a new printer. They shall arrive here soon. Once the person came with the printer, a young female volunteer grabbed a handful of keys and told me to follow her. Construction on most buildings was not yet completed, so some rooms would be unsuitable. The lock on the first room didn't work. She walked into the second room and said, You don't want to stay here. The fifth room seemed all intact, the only problem being that there was no shower head. Exhausted, I just let her know that this would be fine and we would sort out the shower head later. The internet was spotty in general, but a mistake was made in my favor. Someone placed a modem in my room, providing high-speed internet. I figured if I just didn't tell anyone about it, no one would notice. A trade-off for lack of a shower head. In the morning, I did a belly dance to wash up. The water worked, but it came out of a pipe about chest high. Curiously, the shower was up a step but had no ledge to stop the water from basically flooding the bathroom floor. It took me a few times before I figured out the best way to be efficient without soaking the entire bathroom. Although there were buses that drove us to the area where we worked, I walked almost every day. Sochi was basically a resort town, and even in February, the temperature floated in the mid-twenties, hence the palm trees. It was a nice walk, a path led through a field and along the Black Sea. There were several checkpoints to get through each day. The guards were not messing around, and I was later told that these were Russian army. As a local said, look them in the eyes, their eyes are blank. On that first day of work, at our first meeting, where I had to make a strong first impression, that was when the voice emerged. Naive me, thinking that it had been somewhat contained. Stupid, idiotic me thinking that after traveling across the world to Russia that the voice would have left me alone. It waited, bought its time until I was here, trapped in another country, 
where I had to put myself so far out of my comfort zone on all levels, professionally and personally. It came down on me like a blunt instrument. We had a brief meeting and then a rehearsal. The rehearsal was a disaster, and the voice told me that they were going to send me home. Afterwards, we all mulled about outside our television truck, the executives in one group, the crew in another. All of them stopped talking whenever I walked by. I felt the voice smiling and thinking, who the hell do you think you are? On my walk home on that first day, I needed to make some decisions. The voice and I had a screaming match beside the Black Sea. I was here. Other people paid for me to be in Russia, to be a professional, and they didn't have time for me to screw around. I compromised with the voice. I asked that it could say whatever it wanted, but to get it all out now. If it was out to completely destroy me, Russia was the perfect place. It could end me professionally, and I could never fully recover personally. But if it ended me, and fully won, then what would it do? The compromise I made was an understanding that the voice could never fully win. It constantly just brought me to the brink. If it succeeded, there would be no reason for it to exist. That night, I came up with a plan. To get through the next month, knowing that the voice was back, I had to learn how to navigate around it. Not work together, that's a bit of a stretch. I had to be aware of it, allow it to have its say, but be able to keep going and get done what I needed to do. My role was director in live television. Live, which meant there was no room for mistakes. During a 10-hour day, decisions were made every few seconds, and once they were made, there was no fixing them. I had to make sure I was right. On my second day, I called a meeting with my production team. With the voice screaming in my head, I went through the process I had created and made sure that we all knew what we were doing. We started the live broadcast and things started to run smoothly. The approach I figured out was this. The negative thoughts that the voice screamed at me, I turned into a physical thing. A small red ball, to be exact. Whenever the voice yelled at me, or laughed at a decision or call I made, I simply turned it into a small red ball and with my hand threw it over my shoulder. Sure, the place was filling up with red balls, but since they were imaginary, that was okay. Day after day, I let the voice tell me all of the bad things I was doing, let it snarl and gnash its teeth. I packed these statements into little red balls and threw them over my shoulder. Being tense 10 hours a day, every day for a month takes a toll. On my last day, the last show, everything over and the job successful, I went for one final walk along the Black Sea. When I walked far enough, I found an empty field and jumped off the boardwalk, my feet squishing into the mud. A single tree stood in the middle of the field. When I reached the tree, I collapsed to my knees and started digging with my hands into the dirt. I took the tiny red balls and placed them into the deep hole, covering it back up with mud. As I walked away, the voice was still loud but muffled. As I got further and further, the voice became a distant memory. For the first time in years, on the entire trip home from Sochi to Moscow to Toronto, a silence descended on me like I hadn't felt in, well, ever. Little did I know, the voice was not yet finished with me.
Thank you for listening. Again, if you'd like to purchase a copy of I'm Leaving It or any of my other books, they are available at most online booksellers. The live performances were originally performed and recorded at the monthly storytelling event, Stories We Don't Tell. To learn more about Stories We Don't Tell, head over to storieswedonttell.org. For everything else, please visit halldoor.com.